My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. Guys in the studio this week, Jack Carr. Man, I've been waiting on this one. I burned through the books. Uh, He's got a new one coming out. Uh, April 13th of this year, The Devil's Hand, The Terminalist, True Believer, Savage Son, some of the best reading that I've ever done. Now, my first question to you, you were a Navy SEAL, you're a New York Times bestselling author, you have officialjackcar.com, Danger Close podcast, Amazon Prime show that's coming out with Chris Pratt. What's it like to be winning at life? <laughs> well, it's ex- I never thought of it in those terms, but uh, I sure, sure am busy and uh, and I'm pretty tired all the time. Uh, we have three kiddos at home and uh, dog and everything else that goes around with with juggling kids ages ten to fifteen. So it's uh, yeah, it's a busy time. But I feel extremely fortunate to have done one of the two things that I wanted to do in life, which was serve my country in uniform, specifically as a SEAL, and then to be doing that second thing that I wanted to do in life from a very early age, which is write novels just like this. So uh, so I feel very fortunate that these novels are connecting with people, that they're resonating with people, and that it was really a grassroots effort that got them where they are. Because I didn't go on Joe Rogan's podcast until after that book made the New York Times list. I didn't go on Tucker Carlson until after it made the New York Times list. Chris Pratt didn't say anything about it until after. I was hoping all three of those people would, would kind of help but uh, I'll get it to the New York Times list. But now I am so thankful that it was grassroots effort of hunters, of veterans, of tactical shooters, of readers that uh, that helped get this book and this series where it is today, just by word of mouth and uh, and modern word of mouth, the social media telling a friend whether it's you know two people that follow you, five people that follow you, or when you get to Chris Pratt's uh, thirty million. So um, so I feel feel very fortunate. In talking about your your military career, I want to go into that a little bit. But first, I want to go back a little further. Uh, your mom was a librarian, from what I understand. Yep. Your love of books, does that come from her? Uh, was that always kind of, even when you didn't want to do it as a kid, was it kind of drilled into you? Like, hey, you need to read, you need to read. Because I always tell my girls, I have all three girls, I say, no one can ever take away how smart you are. Uh, they can take away a lot of things from you, but they can never take away if you're smarter. So, uh, is, was that something that was drilled into you? Yeah, I wouldn't say drilled in because it was so natural. It was just something that uh, was very natural for us. We were, uh, my parents were reading to us from a very early age. We always had books around. It was just, uh, what you did, but what we weren't told that's what you did. It was just kind of what we did. Uh, so it was very natural. And, uh, and I loved reading from a very early age. Uh, and then when I found out what seals were at age seven, uh, I went to the local library, of course, with my mom and she taught me how to do, use that to teach me how to do some research and found out about, uh, UDT, found out about seals, found out about frogmen, found out about that history. Uh, and, uh, my takeaway was that, Hey, these, this book anyway, that, uh, that I'm reading here, this magazine article, cause there was hardly anything written back then. It was like a one chapter in a book. Uh, back then in the early 80s and a couple magazine articles. Uh, but that was really 
it. It was hard to find anything on special operations in general, right. uh, skills specifically. But my takeaway was that, hey, these guys are some of the most elite fighting special operations forces in the world, and the training is some of the toughest ever devised by a modern military. So I was like, I'm all in. But then I couldn't go down that Google rabbit hole. You couldn't <laughs> just type it in and spend the next years of your life like reading everything. Uh, it was a finite amount that was out there. And back then you could actually read it all. Um, so for me, it was very natural to transition into these books, some of which my parents were reading, uh, that had protagonists with backgrounds that I wanted to have in real life one day. So uh, very early on, I started reading Tom Clancy and Nelson DeMille and David Morrell and AJ Quinnell and JC Pollock and Mark Bolden and all these guys who had protagonists with those special operations background. Usually it was an Army Special Forces guy in Vietnam or a SEAL in Vietnam or some sort of a CIA guy in Vietnam. But that was the typical background for protagonists in the 80s and into the, into the 90s. Um, and so very early on, I knew that, hey, after my time in the SEALs, I am going to write books like this, just like the kind I'm enjoying right here in 1984, 85, 86, 87, 88, right. 89. So that's, that's, I knew where I was going. Um, so all of that prepared me uh, for the military because I was gaining knowledge as I went uh, and I was enjoying that research because I'm also reading the nonfiction stuff. I'm reading stuff in general about warfare and terrorism and insurgencies and counterinsurgencies. So I'm building up that academic study, even at a very young age when I'm also doing the, the physical and mental stuff I think I need to do to increase the chances of getting into the SEAL teams. Um, so all that stuff kind of led me down this path and into the SEAL teams. And then after 20 years out and into this world of publishing. So I can't really think of a better foundation than reading for what I'm doing now. And I can't really think of a better foundation for anything in life than reading. Um, because it's going to help you no matter what you do in life. Uh, and I worry about our kids also. Like they, it's hard. Like I, I was reading to them in the crib right away. I was always, I was trying to do those things that my parents did for me. And there's just so many more distractions these days. Absolutely, so I do worry about that. And I'm thinking maybe they're going to become audiobook, uh, audiobook customers. <laughs> but you know, I think that's still okay as long as they're getting involved. I mean, if you're getting them involved in books, because there's so much crap out there that they could be watching at least if they're listening to an audiobook they're still focusing on literature uh, whether that be fiction nonfiction, whatever it is they're still focusing on it just in a more technologically advanced way than you and i did yeah and I, I, that's my hope that they make that leap because right now they have not they have yet to make that <laughs> leap to the audiobook so it's my it's my hope uh, so we shall see, but, uh, but there's just a lot more distractions now because when we were growing up, we could, we could read, um, we could turn on the television, uh, we could ride our bike down and get a VHS tape from the video store. Right. Uh, if it was in, you know, if, they, if it wasn't sold, if it wasn't out already rented, uh, and not in the return pile. Uh, and then you could play Atari 2600, like or climb a tree. Like those are the things that we had to, that we could do. Um, today there are so many more electronic distractions, uh, for these kids, especially now during COVID when we were all at home from last March through the summer and then here in utah where i am the kids went back to school um so so they did go back to school in the fall but uh but still it's uh having everybody under one roof there uh the the electronic devices sure gotta work out so in talking about you going into the seals because you said from age seven that's what you wanted to do why was that the choice? Because you said you read about other special forces, you read about the army, you read about the Marine Corps and everything. What was it that stood out to you about the seals that made you go? Yep. That's the ones. Yeah. So before that, um, uh, so I'd grown up with 
this, I mean, there's never any, it was a calling. It was a calling from a very early age. And I think a lot of that came from, well, it was innate, I think a lot of it. But then also uh, my grandfather was killed in World War II. He was a Corsair pilot. So those are the planes that had the gull wings that would fold up. And there was a, a TV series back then, late seventies. And then by the time I got to it in the early eighties, it was in, in syndication uh, called Black Sheep Squadron. I think it was originally called Bob Bob Black Sheep, but then it was Black Sheep Squadron in syndication uh, starring Robert Conrad, uh, portraying Pappy Boynton. So I read Pappy Boynton's autobiography. I met him at an air show. Uh, and I just, I grew up with my grandfather's, uh, the maps, silk maps they used to give aviators back then. Cause if you hit the water with a paper map, it would you know disintegrate in the water, but silk maps just got wet. It still works. Um, and, uh, his medals, his wings from, uh, black and white photos of him and his squadron. So I grew up with all those things around. They weren't on the wall or anything, but they were in a box and I had them in my room. Um, so I knew that that was the path that I was going on and I just didn't know uh, what I was going to do. Um, as I started to, to, you know, when I started to get older, like at age six, um, I was just drawn to that ground combat. Like I found myself, even though my grandfather flew, I was just drawn to this ground combat side of things. And then I found out about seals through a movie called the Frogmen, a black and white movie that had people, these guys crawling up over the beaches, blowing up obstacles and, and all that. So, uh, so then I just focused my research on that. And then I found out about these other special operations units, but I was always just going back to those, that seal, back to buds, back to hell week, um, back to what I was studying at the time, which was what they had done in Vietnam, which was a watershed moment for all special operations, of course. But, uh, but I was just drawn to what the seals did then and what, uh, and that, and that training pipeline, because essentially we lived off the reputation that those guys earned in the jungles of Vietnam from the end of Vietnam uh, up to 2001. We did the flashpoints in Grenada, Panama, uh, Mogadishu, uh, those sorts of things. But there wasn't sustained combat operations for the entire force since the end of Vietnam. So, um, so we owe those, I, we owe those guys everything. Um, and then on September 11th, hit, we built off that. We built off that foundation, just like uh, just like they would expect. Move and adapt, just like the enemy's doing to us. When you go into the Navy, of course, you're, you're going to go seal. You know that, um, you, you go to buds. Um, this is brought up a lot in your interviews. You get rolled back from the first class you were in. I think you were in class two twelve. You get rolled back from the first one. Does it dash your hopes at all? Nope. So I mean, hell week, that was like the main thing. So get through hell week. Uh, then you have a walk week after that, because everywhere you go in buds for the whole six months, you run and you run with a swim buddy. You have to be within arm's reach of somebody that entire time. So you never walk for that six months if you're going anywhere. Um, and so after hell week, that's the only time you walk. You put on tennis shoes the rest of the time you're in combat boots. Um, but you put on this tennis shoes because your body has been up since Sunday morning the previous week up through this Friday. Uh, and you get a couple hours of sleep Wednesday and Thursday, but on a beach, on a cot, like it's just it's crazy. Um, and uh, your body's just deteriorating during that time. It can't, it can't uh, there's a lot of things it can't do at the end of that week. It can't repair itself like it would if you're getting that sleep, getting that rest, getting that, uh, that right for the food and all the rest of it. Um, so, uh, so yeah, after that week, then I got rolled back for the shin splint thing. I just couldn't, my, my feet couldn't do the, the, on a swim, just couldn't, uh, couldn't swim like I was going. And then a boat pulled up next to me and they yanked me out of the water, threw me down and said, you're going to medical. And that's what you don't want to do in buds, go to medical because you're worried that you're going to get, man, rolled back isn't that worse, but you're worried that it might be something more serious that might get you kicked out of the program. Right. So you avoid medical at all 
costs uh, at the time. Now it's probably much it's probably much better now, but at the time you avoided it like the plague. Um, so they forced me to go. So I went in, they rolled me back one class, and it actually worked out very well for me. Just classed up for the next class, everything healed, and I never felt I never I should knock on wood. Uh, I never had that uh, that issue again. So uh, then went through the rest with uh, with two thirteen. So it ended up being a, the whole experience. Uh, I look back on it as probably the easiest thing I did in the SEAL teams um, because you show up at the right place at the right time with the right gear and you don't quit. Like those four things, that's all you need to do and you make it through, buds. Um, so after that, then you actually have to start learning. You have to start proving yourself, have to start uh, adapting to changing environments, um, uh, establishing reputation through your character and through uh, how you learn and apply those lessons in the field. So it's, uh, but it was always, it was a great 20 years and uh, it allowed me to make this transition to what I'm doing now. A big question that that uh, people that I've told that I'm going to interview you that that uh, actually the person that introduced me to you um, asked me how fast was the transition from going 20 years from the military right into writing? Was it a quick transition? Was it a slow process? Did, how did it go from look you're doing this every day like you said showing up where you need to be with your gear going where you need to be to it's all on you just to write and get this done. Yeah, so I was lucky in that I knew what I wanted to do next. A lot of guys don't know what they want to do next, or they think they know, and then they make that transition, and it's not what they thought. Uh, that happens quite a bit. Or they're trying to recreate some of those feelings that they had in the SEAL teams on the outside in the private sector, um, or they maybe they miss it, uh, whatever it might be. But I was very clear that it was very clear to me that it was time to get out. So it wasn't a question of uh, should I or shouldn't I? Okay, I did. Uh, should I have done this? Now I'm on the outside and I think I need to go back. Or, so there was none of that. There was no second guessing. There was no, it was, uh, hey, I got back from my last Iraq deployment. I was uh, an 04, which is a major in the rest of the military. It's a lieutenant commander in the Navy. Uh, I'd been a task unit commander downrange, and that was the last time that I would ever tactically maneuver guys on the battlefield. Uh, after that, you can come back yeah, as a team commanding officer, but really as a team CEO these days, you're more of a manager. Um, you're in the tactical operations center, you're allocating assets. Um, you're not out there with the guys making the calls on the ground, which is what I came in to do. So it was very clear to me after that deployment, I got back, I remember landed, headed home and I was like, okay, time to move on. My family needs me. I mean, we have a special needs middle child who needs uh, 24 seven full-time care for life. Uh, we have two other kids on either side of him so uh it was time to time to move on and take care of my family so uh i could take that breath uh went to a shore command at that point went to buds as the operations officer which is like for those listening it's like a coo of a company you kind of manage day-to-day -day operations but it uh at buds like those instructors have it down that first second third phase instructors they're doing the job so uh that was the first time i got to take a breath and make the decision, okay, it's going to get out here, have a couple more years left, uh, give back as much as I can on the way out, but uh, also figure out my next move. And what have I wanted to do my whole life other than this? It's write novels in this specific thriller genre uh, as political thrillers. So uh, I think it was December of 2014, I want to say, and might be a little hazy, might be off by a bit, but um, uh, around then is when I draw my papers. And uh, once you do that in the military, for those who have gotten out of this gigantic bureaucracy, uh, you go in another pile. And all of a sudden, you're not on this track to continue on. You're on a track that gets out of the military, which means you got to go to medical. You need to go to dental. You need to get read out of secret programs. You need to turn in gear. Um, and you need to make appointments for all these things. So point being, you have time. And that's when I started putting together that first book. So I knew exactly what I was going to do. I knew exactly where I was going. Um, and 
for me that made the transition um, not easy. I wouldn't say easy, but I, it was it, it wasn't unexpected. Uh, I knew where I was going, knew what I wanted to do, knew what I had to do to get there, and just devoted my bandwidth towards doing it. So, yep, it was. Uh, uh, it wasn't like I was deployed one day and then home, and all of a sudden right. not the next. There was this transition period there, which uh, while I was still in the military, but getting out of the military where I was also writing. Um, so just a few months after I got out, I submitted the, the manuscript to Simon & Schuster and they ended up uh, picking it up and here we are today. Man, I'm glad you did that. If you don't mind, can we talk about, uh, the, I thought it was a very interesting story that I heard about you when you spoke about your special needs child that uh, Ross Perot did a lot um, and, and I thought that was super interesting that you'd been to all these doctors, you'd been to all these people that just kept kind of giving you the runaround. Uh, Ross Perot gets a hold of you and says, look, I'm going to bring in some people. H- how yeah. was that? Cause that's a, that's a super interesting story. Yeah, that was crazy. So, uh, my wife dealt with most all of this while I was deployed. So while I was, uh, getting ready to deploy or deploying, uh, that was my job being ready for war, being prepared for war, taking my guys to war. So, um, so that's uh, all my energy and effort was into being the best combat leader I could possibly be, which means my wife took care of everything else. Um, and when I got back from that deployment, then I started, you know, seeing what she had been dealing with. Um, but, we, we had no answers to what was going on. We had taken him to all the military medical facilities. We'd taken him up to um, uh, Cedar sinai up in L.A., up the road from San Diego there. Uh, their specialists couldn't figure it out. We'd done some, like, alternative-type oxygen therapies and things like this to try to just, you know, see if we could make some progress. Uh, but uh, it wasn't until a friend of ours told one of Ross Perot's financial advisors about our story uh, that uh, everything everything changed. So I got a call out of the blue from Ross Perot in, uh, gosh, I want to say, she's uh, December, maybe right around the time I started writing the book, December 2014, maybe somewhere in there, um, maybe 13. But regardless, call from Ross Perot, who sounds exactly like Dana Carvey impersonating Ross Perot on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> And uh, he says, hey, we're going to fix your son. We're going to get him down here. I'm sending the jet tomorrow and, uh, you know, get on there and come on down. Uh, and then he hangs up. And uh, I was like, whoa, that that was crazy. And about an hour later, his lead physician calls uh, and says, hey, I know uh, Mr. Pro just called. We're not going to send the jet tomorrow, but send us everything you have on your son. And we're going to put together a team of specialists here at Southwestern Medical Center outside of Dallas. And uh, we'll fly you down and we'll see what we can do. Um, so sure enough, they sent the G550 about a month later. And uh, we got on that thing. They had a nurse on there for our son. And we flew out and uh, did a week of testing there. And then they sent our blood all over the world. And they found a researcher in the Netherlands who had just discovered this specific genetic mutation. And our son was the 13th person in the world that wow. they ever identified with. It didn't really change, you know, it didn't change outlook, prognosis. And with the 13th person in the world, there's not really much data uh, about, you know, what that long-term prognosis is. Um, we just knew we'd have to take care of him forever. And it didn't change that. But being able to put a name to it, uh, that was really what uh, that gift that Ross Perot gave us, being able to say, okay, it's a mutation of this certain gene that uh, that helps form the brain, and uh, now we we know what it is, we know what it what it was. Nothing we can do uh, uh, could have done about it, um, and uh, he's hopefully we have him because we are uh, strong enough to uh, to give him uh, help him reach his full potential, whatever that might be, while at the same time raising two kids on either side of him. So uh, so Ross Perot gave us that gift, and on my first book tour for 
for the terminal list. I uh, went through Dallas and uh, stopped by to see him again, and he still had a um, picture of our son on his desk. Wow. That's got to give you a little bit of hope, though, just to put a name and a face to it. it, it it's yeah. got to give you hope that you didn't have before yeah. because no one could give an answer. Yep, yeah, but it wasn't much much hope. It was more like uh, just being able to put a name to it. Just I don't know how to really describe it, but just uh, it helped so much. It was just took away one unknown and let us go. Okay, reset. We know what it is. We we know what it, what's a what, what to call it. And uh, now here we go on the same path, but just from a more solid foundation. I guess that's a better way to to put it. Just being able to put that name to it helped uh, immeasurably. So uh, yeah, I'll never be able to thank Ross Perot enough for that. Yeah, that it. I had heard that story, and it was so amazing to me that you just got this call out of the blue, and you have to hang up the phone, going, "All right, who who's messing around?" And I mean, yeah, I did get a heads up that someone's going to be calling you. Uh, you know, so I did get something like that. Okay, uh, like a special calls coming in. So I think I did get something like that. But uh, but still, it, it yeah, Ross Perot calling, sounding like Dana Carvey, <laughs> impersonating Ross Perot was uh, was pretty amazing. I'll never forget that. That's a that's an awesome story. So let's let's get into what we came here for. Let's get into these books. Um, right. Man, let's start with I'm, I'm just going to go through them. I think it's been enough time for three of them that we can talk a little bit about the details. We'll we'll stay clear of details on the fourth one. We start with the terminal list. My know, first people don't uh, when I talk about First Blood or I talk about these different novels that influenced me over time. Uh, first Blood came out in 1972. Uh, that gave us the character Rambo, uh, created by David Morrell, amazing guy. We're friends now. He's an incredible person. Um, but there's a, the ending of the book is different than the ending of the movie, and I won't say it. But I feel like if that book came out in 1972, that we should be able to talk about it. But uh, but so many people just know the movie that I usually refrain from giving away the end of the book uh, because <laughs> because of that. But it it's been a, been a couple moons since yeah. uh, 1972, so I feel like we should be able to talk about it. And it you know it's the best of the Rambo movies. So uh, so good. Yeah. Oh my god. So good. Uh, just and the, the cast. And that's how, the, yeah the difference between a book and a movie that are both fantastic, but both so different. Yeah. Uh, so into this when i talked to the producers on uh for the terminalist series with amazon and i talked all about you know my background reading and wanting to do this my whole life all the things we just talked about here and i talked about that example of first blood being different than uh, than the uh than the movie and but both being fantastic and looking at all these different adaptations over time books i'd read that had been adapted to film or to tv shows or whatever it might be um i think that that helped put them at ease that i wasn't going to be this author attached to the programs just saying you ruined my vision with every uh every script i looked at so i think that uh that helped and there's quite a few of those out there i mean there it's notorious in hollywood for like stephen king and stuff to to tell him he hates the movie uh <laughs> you know there's 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 quite a few authors i i point him out because he has so many of the movies that are out there but the terminal list my first question right off the bat is um why so scorched earth right off the bat yeah, so because I knew I had to come out 
with something very visceral, very primal, very hard hitting, because it had to both get noticed by a New York publisher and it had to connect with an audience, with a readership. Uh, so I wrote about six, seven, eight different ideas down before I started. And it was very clear to me that I needed to start with the terminal list. I really wanted to write book three first, Savage Son, but I knew that the characters weren't yet developed enough to explore the themes I explore in Savage Son. I had to start with the terminal list. I had to have another book that was a really a journey of redemption in True Believer and then the audience, the readership would be ready for what happens in Savage Sun. So it was very clear. It was not even a question which one to start with. Um, and hence, scorched earth policy. So uh, I remember growing up reading, and I love this this theme of revenge. And I think there's just something that's very, that's so primal about it that we connect to. Um, just like we connect to, we're drawn to fire. If there's a fire somewhere, uh, you know, you're drawn towards the campfire um, because it means, it means life, it means food, it means sustenance. Uh, and there's just something primal about that. We, even if we don't recognize it, um, something inside of us sure does. And for me, movies about revenge that had that theme, books about revenge that had that theme resonated. And so it was very clear that that's the one to start with. But I also remember in a lot of those voiceovers that, that were uh, attached to movie trailers in the 80s, there was always this protagonist <laughs> who had nothing left to nothing left to lose. And I was always like, dang it, you know what? He's got something to lose. He could die. Um, you know, you'd go to jail forever. Um, there's something to lose. Uh, so I needed to take that away from my protagonist. And I got, um, I guess we, we can talk it because it's because there are more books out there. Uh, so it's not a split in the beginning when you well, just have one book, you don't know if there's going to be another. Well, and uh, I think you, I think you very much describe each book with the next book. Does that make any sense? Like you, you explain the terminal list quickly in true believer, and then you explain true believer in savage son quickly. And then, and in devil's hand, I got to say, you explain the stories probably the most in-depth of any of the four books you you really went into it by naming characters and all that kind of stuff so yeah and use that tool we won't say what it is maybe you can find it on my website actually because now there's uh the prologue uh well the preface the prologue um the quotes that set the tone uh then the first two chapters are up on the website for people. So if they're wondering what, uh, what we're talking about with the, the introduction and kind of the recap of what happened, there's a, there's a specific scene and tool that I use to, to do that, uh, that I thought was kind of fun because I've been on the receiving end of, uh, of that before. And I got to, <laughs> you have to, <laughs> I got to, I couldn't remember. It's been a few years. So it's been, I, I did mine in, uh, 2006 or seven. That's when I did so mine, 2006. A little bit. So I was thinking back a little bit, but uh, this, I did my research, got online again, confirmed a few things, and and uh, and then kind of wove it all together. And there's there's a lot of different techniques to these uh, these interviews that uh, that uh, certain government agencies do to vet applicants. Um, so I had to take a few of these different um, uh, first person accounts uh, and kind of weave them into what my memory was of my experience, and then adapted to the narrative as a way to explain how the character got to where he is today if the people didn't read books one, two, and three ahead of time. But uh, but in that square search policy thing, uh, I love that, but I, wanted to, I didn't want to have that, he's got nothing left to lose, but he really does. So I had to have him thinking that he's already dead. Uh, and I got that from 
reading uh, books on samurai back in the day and how they used to go into battle thinking they were already dead because that made them more effective and efficient warriors. So I said, how would you do that to a modern warrior that's just back from Iraq and Afghanistan um, that has to now become the terrorist, become the insurgent that he spent his whole life fighting and bring the war home to people who have been sending young men and women to their death now for 20 years at the time I wrote the book, 16 years. Um, but, uh, but I had to have him thinking he was already dead so he would not really not have anything left to lose and be able to compromise his principles essentially and become that terrorist that he'd been fighting and start putting these people involved in this conspiracy uh, into the ground. So uh, it was fun. It was very therapeutic as well. This, I, I'm going to tell you right up front, this is my favorite of the books. Uh, this one is? The terminal, the, the terminal. Uh, well, that one, that one follows closely. But there was something about the terminal list that you just can't put it down. Like, I mean, like you see a total transformation of a person who in the beginning is very calculating and cold and, and doing the mission to someone who just completely is still very much in control, but is out on on a rope way out there by the end of the book. Yeah, yeah, and he has to, and he had to think that he was dying, and I got that really from the church hearings in the '70s, um, where Frank Church of Idaho held a series of hearings that explored and um, and uh, really brought to light a lot of abuses by different agencies of the federal government, um, and a lot of things changed after those those hearings. There were a lot of uh, different regulations and laws and safeguards put in place so that a lot of what was uncovered during those hearings didn't happen again. And I thought, hey, what if uh, somebody didn't get that memo? What if enough time has passed since the mid-70s uh, where someone explores doing some of the things that uh, that were uncovered in those hearings again today in the modern era? Um, so that kind of gave me the, a little bit of the background there from which to explore that conspiracy and, uh, and have something happen where the protagonist would think that he's actually dying and dying quickly. Boy, was that a mistake uh, for them to do that. Um, so you you go through the movie, uh, excuse me, you go through the book, um, and he, I, I like I said, I think it gets darker and darker and darker as the book goes on. And I think it kind of, now the ending is one of my absolute favorite endings of a book I've ever read. It, just because I knew who was going to do the show, and I could actually see all of that playing out. I could hear the music that they would use, everything. Like, But the most, I guess you would say the most unexpected kill in the book was at the mosque. Okay. And that's where it puts it on a whole. you were going to say in the swamp. I thought you were going to say in Florida. It was, but here's the thing. I, that was bad. But here's the thing. You kind of knew, like, that guy's going to get his. In the, in the mosque, you set it up very uh, smoothly to where it transitions on a dime. And it, it goes from, from this to that. And you're like, I, I got to say, you're like, holy shit, I can't believe he just did that. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. So I, 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 I thought about uh, the song. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard. Uh, corn coming undone but i could hear it playing in the background as he finishes off the in slow motion walking away from the mosque i mean it's been a long time since i've listened to uh to music i'm more of a podcast right now i came in but i'm gonna go back and listen to that now because as i wrote 
I had different stanzas from Man Comes Around from Johnny Cash. Oh, great song. Terminal. So I had that in the, you know, before the prologue. I had that before uh, part one, before part two, before part three, and before the epilogue. So I had these Johnny Cash stanzas in there from that song. Uh, but it turned out that as a brand new author, apparently you have to, um, uh, you know, go through the Johnny Cash estate to, right. uh, to be able to use that sort of thing. Right. Uh, so I guess as a brand new author that Simon Schuster wasn't about to spend whatever you need to spend to use a song and a book on, on a, me, unproven author. Uh, but I did find out that um, that one line from that Johnny Cash got from somebody back in the 1800s, and no one knows who it was. Uh, and it's just kind of like a folk song type thing. It's not attached to a name or a label, of course, or anything like that. Um, so there's a man going around taking names. And so that, that was legally allowed to use that, and so that is the one quote that starts this first novel but in my head as i was writing each one was that johnny cash song so there is uh i don't know if i have to look at the galley copy to see if it made it into the galley i don't think so but in the initial printouts of the book where it's just bound you know with like a ring type liner like you can do at staples it's uh, all those stanzas are in there it's oh wow got after it yeah uh i even thought of an end uh, theme song was uh, Five Finger Death Punch, uh, Wrong Side of Heaven, The Righteous Side of Hell. Ooh, I'm going to write this down because, uh, let's see, I'm going to write that down. So, Corn uh, is the first one, which is the, which song is it again? Uh, Coming Undone. And and oh, I, I truly, Jack, I truly saw him walking away in slow motion with it going on with it at a very specific part of the song. And I was like, yes. And that's why it's my favorite part. And then the other one for his kind of overall theme is, uh, it's called the wrong side of heaven, the righteous side of hell. And it is actually about soldiers saying that they're on the wrong side of heaven, but they're definitely on the righteous side of hell of what they did. Nice. I like it. Awesome. And who sings that one? That's Five Finger Death Punch. Awesome. I got it. Sorry to the listeners. I'm taking notes. So as I was talking to someone today and they, they had two things like this. And I was like, oh, I'm going to take those. Those are fantastic. And we got off the podcast, got off the interview, and I wrote one down. And I'm like, ah, what was the other one? And I still can't right now remember what it was. I remember one of the two words, but I can't remember the, uh, the other. So yeah, that's how it goes. A lot of people compare you and ask you, I've heard, they say you are James Reese. I disagree. I disagree. Not because, uh, well, I disagree. I don't disagree for the reason you say. You say, well, he's a lot smarter. He's more cunning. He's this and that. I think you're Freddie. Hmm. Well, if I'm going to read book two, I hope I'm not. But, uh, well, <laughs> yeah. I don't know I, as much about weapons as, uh, as weapons as Freddie. He's like the gun nerd. Um, guy, but, uh, but there were you know, so many element. things that stuck out about Freddie comparing them to you. Actually, well, there's some family stuff in there that I wove in to develop that character that I obviously, uh, yeah, incorporated from my own experience. Uh, so that's in there as well. But, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. But I don't want to get no spoiler alerts, but, uh, uh, he, he, he I will, uh, he, he makes it through most of the book. I guess that's a good way to put it. Uh, I, yeah. Majority. And it, well, technically, he makes it through the majority of two books. So, yeah, yeah good point. Yeah. Good point. So, uh, I, I got to ask about your your villains. When you do a villain, you do almost like a super villain. 
And and I I wonder about that. That your villains, they're not just bad guys. They're bad guys. Like they're like there's nothing redeemable about any of your bad guys. Uh, well, there's uh, there might be a couple in there. Uh, the guy that has the 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 uh, the, the family that uh, in the first book that I, still, I don't give too much away, but uh, has to blow himself up. But uh, uh, I like writing the villains. I like writing antagonists. Uh, but I also have to write them in a way that when you just make them human enough, but by the time they get what's coming, that the reader isn't like, oh, that was really mean. Why did why did he have to? You know, make that guy walk around the tree and get eaten alive by the swamp with his with his. So you have to do you have to make them, uh, you know, bad enough where the reader you're not going to lose the reader because of what happens to them. Uh, so so I, I do really like writing them, uh, especially these last ones, this last one in uh, in the Devil's Hand, um, because. For, for James Reese, I can go back to my own experience. I can think about what it was like to be a sniper in Ramadi at the height of the war. I can think what would I do here or there if I was, you know, better at these things, that sort of sort of thing. But uh, for the antagonists, I really don't know what it's like to be a politician or to want to be a politician or to, you know, want to grab that power or be a private sector financier type guy, whatever. I don't know what it's like to do to want to do those things. Um, so I get to explore what it's like through the eyes of my antagonists. Uh, and I really enjoy writing those characters because of that. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, yeah, super fun for me. And then it's, uh, it's fun for me to figure out how they're going to, how they're going to get it. Yeah. Well, definitely that government official that you're talking about, he, uh, he likes to talk a lot. In, in devil's hand. Yes. Yeah. Especially so, when he meets, uh, Mr. Reese, I was like, gee, many Christmas. If I was Reese, I'd tell this guy, can we get on with this? <laughs> so I find that I get to know my characters a lot through dialogue. Um, you know, there's certain things you can do with descriptions and, and all the rest of it. But uh, when you have a conversation or you're writing a conversation, uh, I don't necessarily know going in all their traits. I just know, hey, I need, you know, this guy to do this, this guy to do that. And the outline, these are pretty much my characters. Others pop up along the way as, as necessary. Um, or they just get, it just becomes natural to incorporate a new character here or there in the book. But, uh, but they don't really have their own personalities yet. They're just a name um, and a position, essentially. But when I have them in conversation with other characters, that's where I really get to know them as an author that's where they develop these idiosyncrasies that did differentiate them from other characters in the book so it's really through that dialogue um, that i do that that i get to know them and that the reader gets to know them as well so i find that uh that's, that's some of the, uh, the the parts i really enjoy in speaking about that then can we i want to talk about that a little bit without giving away too much but was there kind of a point to and i think you know what i'm talking about in their first meeting uh, was there a point in telling all of those, I guess you would say, facts from him to Reese? So in which, uh, which, which in one? the devil's hands. Yeah, I'm trying to remember which one you're talking about. So when they uh, meet at uh, Camp David. Oh, okay, okay. So yeah, that's. So I left that um, uh, character to be. Uh, in my mind, he's not an antagonist. He is uh, he is a, a good guy character, um, but I wanted it to be you know semi. I wanted people to think about it, um, and because uh, because I've heard from different people now that the that the galley copies out there that it kind of goes goes both ways. Some people think he's a good guy. Some people think he's a he's a bad guy, and uh, and I love that because that's kind of how how I wrote it. But for me, uh, he was a he was a good guy, um, but. Uh, 
uh, but that's not, but not for everybody. And that was intentional as I wrote it. And I knew that other, that different people with different life experiences, uh, would have a different take. Well, that I, character. Yeah. I think he definitely has skeptical motivations. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, that's, that's for sure. Uh, definitely, uh, motivations that aren't, uh, pure to most well other than him and then what he shares with Reese. So, uh, so yeah, I love developing those characters like that through conversation, just like you kind of would in real life. Is feel somebody out a little bit, um, and instead of just getting getting right to it to, to move the story along, I like to uh, uh, to move that story and develop the characters through that dialogue and through that experience. So um, yeah, I, I love every part of writing these things. Yeah, well, I'm telling you, let's roll back real quick to True Believer. Uh, talk about it. Uh, I don't want to give too much away on Terminalist. I want you to know though that is my absolute favorite. Uh, the, the ending I could I could picture it I I'm telling you it was uh even with with the plane and what happens at the uh, it was amazing awesome awesome I was there I walked that same path that he walks and you know I was looking at the trees and the grass and the homes and, the, and all the rest of it so I try to put boots on the ground wherever I can uh just like I did with I went to Mozambique for the mm -hmm. second book went to South Africa went to uh Kamchatka Peninsula Russia just south of Siberia for the third so uh so I like to go to these places and put boots on the ground to, to weave this different local flavor in so uh, I was at that exact airfield that I described you know looking at that and taking the looking at the beach and the rocks and where he'd come over the beach and, and all that sort of thing. So, uh, so I find that to be, that, that, that's fun for me to do as well. In talking about that, um, that was probably my favorite part of true believer was in Mozambique. I, I really enjoyed that part of it. Um, I, I think that really gave a different side and it started that redemption path that you talked about, uh, was right there. Uh, same kind of things that he'd done before, but he was putting it towards good, uh, very much down that redemption path. And, and I love the characters that you brought out there that, that run the ranch and all that kind of stuff. And I, I hate to sound like a fanboy and keep saying these things, but there was so much that stuck out in these books to me that I really cared about. Uh, you made it a point to talk about, um, when, uh, Reese had trouble with how they treated the help. And so he made sure that it was uh, a team of his instead of people working for him. And, and you really get to see the, those characters really, really start to build up. In, all, in saying all of that, um, what was your favorite part of that book? Ooh, favorite part of True Believer? Hmm. Well, I did. Get, so I did go to Africa and Mozambique to do that research uh, before I'd even submitted the first novel to Simon Schuster. Uh, and that's because uh, I'm familiar with the John Grisham story of writing A Time to Kill first. Okay. And he couldn't give that book away. Then he writes The Firm. That one takes off. It's the movie with Tom Cruise. Then they go back. They make the movie with Matthew McConaughey for A Time to Kill. And I think, I haven't read some of his later ones, um, but I read most of those earlier ones, the first 10 or so, let's say. Um, but uh, I think A Time to Kill is, for me anyway, is probably his best work for me. For me, um, there's, He's done amazing things, of course. But, uh, but that was the one that didn't work at first. And had he stopped and gotten discouraged, he wouldn't have written the firm, which means he'd still be sitting in a law office somewhere doing something he doesn't enjoy. Uh, he wanted to write. He wanted to be an author. Uh, so he kept going, and he wrote that second novel, even knowing that first one wasn't selling and didn't really work out. And then 
off it goes. So I was always going to write a second one. Now, if the second one didn't work, I was then going to reevaluate my life choices and maybe have to use some of these contingency plans. But uh, but I was always going to do two. So first one, almost done by the time I get out of the military, doing my edits, uh, going back through it over and over, trying to get it as good as I can possibly get it before I submit. Um, but before I do, I take off to Mozambique to write True Believer. So I needed to put boots on the ground. I hadn't been there. I'd been to some of the other places in the novel. I've been to Morocco. I've been to Odessa. I've been to some of these other other areas, but I had not been to Mozambique. And I needed to go to a place where James Reese could learn to live again and could take those skills and turn them into something, apply them to something positive and productive. Um, so, so I went there, put boots on the ground, and that camp that I describe in the novel is the one that I was at in uh, in Mozambique. Uh, those professional hunters, those, they're the ones that were there uh, with me. The, the tracker, that was the one that was there with me, um, or, the, or multiple trackers. So it's uh, so I got to weave all that local flavor into the story, uh, which I wouldn't really have been able to do by just doing a Google search and just imagining what it's uh, what it's like over there. So I like to go there, even if I don't know exactly. And I, when I went there, I had pages of questions I wanted to ask. Um, but I found that once I got over there, yeah, I answered those. But I got a ton more that I didn't even know I needed to ask. So if I was just researching those questions online, uh, that's all I would have done. And then I would have, would have written. But having gone there, then I get to figure out all this other stuff that I wasn't even in my head that I needed to even ask had I not put those boots on the ground. So, uh, so yeah. So my favorite part of that one, uh, well, I got to go to do that research. So it was amazing going there and spending time in Mozambique. Um, but, you know, I kind of like... I'm like, I gotta say, I gotta like the end because I know where it's going, and I'm excited to write the next one. So I kind of like, uh, I like the resolution pieces because I want to make after someone has trusted me with their time, whether they're listening to it or they're reading it. Same thing with social media or a blog post. So people have trusted me with their most valuable asset. I want to be, um, I want to be a, I don't know, a good arbiter of that trust, and I want to be able to uh, uh, be a be a good return on investment for someone. Um, so I want them to get to the end of this novel and have enough resolution where they're like awesome that they, where they feel good and uh they got to this place but that also once they want to go on to that next novel they also have like one lingering thing they need to solve they want to figure out so it leads them into that that next book same thing you want to do at the end of a chapter when you get to that end of a chapter for me and i want people to turn to the next one i want to keep them up all night so when i get to the end of that chapter i want to leave just that little bit of oh, what's next what's next and same thing at the end of the novel but with a lot more resolution than you get at the end of a single chapter. In saying that, then let me ask you a question, because there was something more that I wanted. Why did you make rekindling a certain relationship between Reese and someone else here and here and here? And it just kind of goes, I'm like, man, come on, let, let's get this going. A true believer? Yes. Yeah, because uh, it's kind of like the third date rule, I guess. Okay. Uh, yes. You know, so yeah, something like uh, that's kind of how I how I thought of it, and I also thought that hey, um, you know James Reese's family uh, in the first. I mean, it's not a spoiler really because I think it's on the book jacket, uh, and it's in the first few chapters. Um, it was brutally brutally murdered a family that he loves, uh, so he can't just immediately jump into this other you know relationship the next day. Uh, he needs to work a few things out first, uh, and uh, so I couldn't really in the second novel. Even I was always I was never in that second novel going to have anything happen there either but by the time we get to the third there's enough resolution there from the first two that it's time for him to 
make some decisions and figure out uh, what he's going to do going forward and who he's going to he's going to uh, spend that time with, which path he's going to take. So uh, so by the third, it was time to time to explore that relationship. So uh, and I guess not even a relationship necessarily that I'm talking about, but with them where just him trying to reconnect just to say, hey, I'm here. I, I'm not I'm not dead yet. And I, I was like, oh, it's going to have. Nope. Oh, it's going to. Ha- nope. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I really thought on the on the ship, something's going to happen. I, I thought it was going to go through on the ship. No, no. I mean, you've been, you've made those sat phone calls. They're awkward anyway with someone that's uh, been ex- expecting the call at a you know a certain time of day, and and uh, you know you sound like an alien from from outer space on some of those uh, those satcom uh, you know uplinks and downlinks from uh, uh, during that time frame anyway. Now now you can probably just get on any cell phone in those areas of the world, but uh, but back in the day you had to call from a sat phone, right? And uh, times it was hard to hard to understand the person on the other end, so I had to weave all that in there. Favorite character from True Believer? Favorite character from True Believer? Well, I always have an affinity, of course, for uh, for the protagonist because that's why I've chosen to to write these uh, uh, these stories around and through the eyes of. But uh, you know, probably the same as a lot of the of the readers out there uh, that like that Hastings family. They want to know more about the Hastings family. Yep. They want to know about Rich Hastings. They want to. So I get those questions all the time, uh, and I might explore some of that further because uh, it is oh, fascinating. Man, I- family and uh and actually it's based on well some of those characters are based on people i met in mozambique but the actual hastings last name comes from uh a family in montana uh the uh and i know the the wife and she came from what was then rhodesia uh so she lent me uh, a bunch of books that i used for research and she's fantastic amazing um so i based uh caroline hastings on uh, on her uh for the uh, book three you don't meet her until book three but the, yeah, the hastings clan is uh is definitely fascinating uh, and the question i get most about the series of the terminal list is who's going to play ray hastings That's I, the question. i've been thinking often. about it <laughs> and i don't know yet i know who could play his dad uh, Rafe Hastings, Rafe's dad. Yes. Even though it's, it does, it'll that comes in Savage Son, but uh, I I think uh, Mel Gibson could pull it off. Yeah, Mel Gibson could pull that off for sure. Uh, especially for sure. you know having uh, you know I I think him. I'm not sure. I'm I'm having trouble getting a couple of them in my head of of okay. who they're going to be. I'm I'm trying to figure out Gray. Uh, I, I really yeah, can't a few people that can work on him. I, that's a good point. There's a few people that could be gray. I don't even yeah. have one in my head that could do that. I'm sure there's a few that would be able to really pull that off though. And by the way, when you said the guy that gets blown up, that he's redeemable, he's not redeemable. <laughs> in the first book. Yes. Yeah. He, he has misgivings. He has misgivings. Mm. He has second. I think he's kind of an asshole, Jack. Yeah. Well, they're all going to That's why they all get <laughs> So let's move on to Savage Son. Uh, this one has a lot of meaning with you. Uh, you have said in the past, this was from your childhood, something that you had always wanted to do. Um, and you had read a short story and you had always wanted to recreate that short story. Now that short story has been recreated a couple of times. Uh, there was an ice tea movie. Uh, there, there was a couple different things that have game. Yeah. 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 Yeah, great movie. Uh, so there's been a couple of things where um, that happened, where it got recreated. But I think you really got to the heart of it um, 
And in this one, in this book, this is where the story really kind of, it, it takes a really dark turn in this one. Mm, in Savage Sun? Yes. Yeah, I think there's dark turns in all of them, I guess. That's why I have to keep asking, which one? Yeah, uh, well, I, I, I think this one, just because, um, I mean, just the hunts alone yeah, so, with, without anything else. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I read most dangerous game by Richard Connell. It's a 1923 short story, uh, back in sixth grade. And even back then I knew the path I was on military and then, uh, into being an author. Um, but I always wanted to pay tribute to that short story through a longer form novel. Uh, and I was growing up, I, I always imagined them making that a movie of it. And there was a movie, an actual movie called most dangerous game, uh, back in the day. I think it was made in like 19 gosh, 38 or something like that. I, I think it was that. even sooner than that. It probably could have been. Yeah. 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 yeah right. Cause it's like, it's like 20 something. Yeah. I think it's 28. Yeah. I think that might be it. Um, but, uh, but I wanted to do a, a modern take on it. And, uh, so this was my opportunity to do that. And, uh, I knew that I couldn't be the first one, couldn't be the second book, but by the third one, that's when readers were ready to, for me to explore those, the dark side of man through the dynamic of hunter and hunted. And, uh, and that's really what Savage Sun is all about so um so yeah it may, may take a couple a couple dark turns in there yeah yeah i could say that um what gave you the idea uh, other than you, you know the short story that you talked about but what gave you I, the idea of like medney and and all that kind of stuff of course all that stuff exists but what what gave you that idea to uh, actually place it there Yep. So most dangerous game that that takes place on an island. So I needed a needed an island. Um, so to draw that parallel. Um, but the other books that are more most closely associated with that one that I'm also playing tribute to. I mean, most of it is most dangerous game. That's the that's the base. But uh, but Rogue Mail by Jeffrey Household was another novel that moved the genre forward. Written in 1939. Uh, First Blood by David Morrell, 1972, uh, and then uh, Last of the Breed by Louis L'Amour, which I think is 1986. I want to say. Um, so all of those were so influential on me. Um, that really this was the book to incorporate uh, a lot of that influence uh, and pay tribute to those other authors that uh, inspired me to go down this path um, for at a very early age. So I got to weave all of that in there. So um, the uh, I think I might go back. I don't want to give away too much here, but I'm planning on going back and exploring something I don't gloss over in, but I make... Um, I make more, uh, there's a certain time period that I don't explore fully near the end of Savage Sun uh, to move the story along in Siberia. So I might go back and explore that at some point. Um, so I think that'd be, that'd be pretty fun. Are um, you possibly talking about the, the ghost? I, I am. Oh, I am, so. that will be great. Yeah, it's, it's on my list. It's on, it's in there. It's in there. Maybe a short story. It's possible. It's possible. So we shall, we shall see. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I really, without I'm paying tribute to all those, all those authors, and there's a lot of um, all those influences growing up in all of my, my novels and in particular, uh, Joseph Campbell, who wrote uh, hero with a thousand faces. I was introduced to him in 1988 through a series of interviews he did with Bill Moyers called the power of myth. Uh, my mom and I watched that together on PBS and uh, I found out about, Oh, look at this guy. Uh, his work influenced George Lucas in star Wars. So I was initially, I was enthralled immediately uh, and then found out that, oh, what he's exploring here is all these different cultures that had similar mythologies, even though they never met 
each other. There's this similar hero's journey, uh, whether you are in uh, Northern Europe or Africa or China, uh, wherever it was, there is a similar mythology passed down, first orally and then written down, uh, where a reluctant hero goes on a journey, goes on a quest. Um, he meets a mentor along the way who gives him either a tool or a bit of knowledge uh, to help him on that journey. Uh, typically goes into a, into a cave at some point, comes out uh, a little bit different um, and is tested in some sort of a crucible and then comes back from where he came to pass on those lessons to the next generation. So uh, what that's really doing is passing on tactical lessons uh, to those that are going to defend the family, defend the tribe, uh, and pass on lessons from the hunt. So things that are going to keep your bloodline, your tribe, your community alive. Um, and so those things resonate with us still today. They're still in, they're still in there. Uh, so all of the books are influenced heavily by Joseph Campbell and by all those other authors that I read growing up and by the academic study of warfare that I did growing up. All that studying of terrorism and insurgencies and counterinsurgencies and then, of course, the experience, practical experience on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan. In saying all that uh, uh, about the common myths and things like that, you you do have a reluctant hero uh, in this, and that, that comes a lot from that as reluctant heroes. But another thing that sticks out from what you're saying is, is that you were talking about people that uh, are going to protect the family, protect the clan and everything like that. What's interesting about Savage Son is uh, I think you almost take an opposite look at that. Is that is that am I following it correctly or am I reading it wrong? No, I think you can interpret it uh, any way, any way you want to as, as the reader. Right. But uh but really, he's protecting that family. They came for him once in uh, in Montana. He almost lost uh, the new uh, his new love, these new relationships, the people that protected him. Right. And so now it's about making sure that does not ever happen again. I guess I should have been more clear on that. Not that one. I agree with that on 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 that. I'm talking about the uh, Russians. Uh, the one near the near the end. Yes, very much. Uh, uh, an oh, yeah. There's still some revenge. There's revenge in there that runs through. Uh, there, there's a revenge theme, not just in the first book. I mean, the first book is essentially solely about that, that revenge without constraint. But there are themes of revenge that continue through all the novels uh, to include The Devil's Hand and to include uh, the fifth one that I'm writing now uh, and the sixth one that I already have in my head because uh, I find it helpful to know where I'm going and where the story's headed so I'm not wasting any bandwidth worried about, oh, how am I going to end this to lead into the next one? Like, I've already got that down, so all my bandwidth is on the story. It's not worried about a title. I like having a title soon, even if it's a working title and it can change, that's fine. But as long as I have that there, I'm not worried about it anymore. Uh, I know where I'm going. Okay, and I know when the next one's starting. I know how the next one's ending. Okay, I'm not worried about that at all. And all my time, energy, and effort is devoted solely to making it the best story I possibly can. So let's talk about your new one. April 13th of this year, it comes out. April 13th, yeah. It's going to it's gonna be awesome. Uh, let's talk about it. This one to me, I, I had told you this before, this one to me seems more ripped from the headlines, more of everything. I mean, you even point out specific people in the recent past. You don't say names or anything like that, but you definitely point out specific things. Um, why that for this one? Because it's not really a topic in the other books. 
So in this one, I wanted to explore something that I thought about a lot in uniform, what I continue to think about today as an author, which is what is the enemy learned by watching us on the field of battle for this last 20 years at war? Uh, essentially, we've been playing poker and our enemy has been able to see our cards and watch us on the field. What have they learned by doing that? What have they learned from 1979 up to 2001 from that time period? Um, so, so that's what really I'm exploring. What is the enemy learned and how, what are they incorporating into future battle plans. Um, so as I'm doing this, well, I started in 2019, or 2019 um, I write the outline and I write it on the way to Russia because I leave my I leave my, com my computer at home, I leave my phone at home because who knows what people have sent me over the years uh, with my background. I just didn't want to walk through any security in Russia and have them like download all these different things and connect all these different different dots. So I brought a sat phone to call home on and, uh, and that's it. So I wrote the outline on the way to Russia uh, and uh, I start doing this research when I get home into infectious diseases, into uh, the weaponization of infectious diseases, into what the Japanese did in World War II, who they used bioweapons on, where did that data go at the end of the war, what the Germans did in World War II, where did that data go at the end of the war, how did we start our bioweapons program, how did the Soviet Union start their bioweapons program, what happened in the 70s when we signed bioweapon conventions, um, did we adhere to them, did the Soviets adhere to them, if we're making bioweapons defense um, type, type vaccines or, uh, or blockers or things like that, uh, well, you have to create then the actual bioweapon that you're creating the defense against as well. So I started researching all these things and then January, February hits last year and that's COVID. Uh, so I'm thinking in terms of the enemy. I'm thinking in terms of Iran, Russia, China, North Korea, super empowered individuals, terrorist organizations, uh, what they have learned. And now, what are they learning? Watching our response to COVID. And then I'm writing, I'm writing, I'm writing. And then we get to end of May. And then we have the civil unrest in our cities. And what is the enemy learning for that? So I'm writing. I know the enemy's learning something. Uh, so because this book is about that, uh, I incorporate that. Then we get into this very contentious uh, uh, political season and election cycle. Uh, and the enemy's not just watching that and, and then going about their day. They are... They are making notes. They are uh, applying those notes and those lessons to future battle plans. So it's very timely in that respect. And the theme of the book, uh, the topic that I explore, lends itself to continual learning, continual adaptation, just like the enemy is doing to us. So I think that's why it, it seems uh, ripped from the headlines. But initially, back when I started doing this research in 2019, um, it was really just going to be about 2001, up to today and 1979 to 2001. So those two time periods essentially kind of morphed together uh, and what the enemy has learned from those two different uh, paradigms as far as uh, our response to terrorism, um, our conduct on the battlefield, that sort of thing. So, um, so I expected that to continue, but then when COVID hit, when the civil unrest hit, when the election cycle hit, uh, those are all things that the enemy is looking at. And so I couldn't ignore them. So they ended up uh, being woven into the novel. Another question that I have about it is you, while you were a SEAL, did a lot of operations in Iranian-influenced Iraq. That came through in this book. <laughs> I think I've mentioned it in every book. Uh, I think there's at least one sentence in each book where I, where I throw something in there about IEDs or uh, uh, EFPs and you know how they got into Iraq. I think I, I at least insinuate it in each of the novels. Um, but here I really go into it because right. it is. 
it's an important part of the storyline and the background of some of those bad guys, some of those antagonists. Um, they're actually involved in, in on the other side of, of those programs that uh, that got IEDs, EFPs into Iraq uh, to really wear down public support for what we were doing there at the time to give Iran that influence over Iraq. So something they couldn't do during the eight years of war uh, that they had from uh, 1888. So it's, um, it's uh, it, all that, that weaves in uh, in this novel. And this one, uh, I got very fortunate in that I'd been to most of the places that I talk about in this novel. I didn't need to go put boots on the ground because I couldn't. Uh, but that was just lucky. I just, uh, that was just lucky in this one. Um, and this was a lot of academic research, a lot of interviews, uh, and, uh, and a lot of history woven in uh to this one to form the foundation of this novel can we talk about the bat cave for a minute uh, i'm gonna see how much i can talk about the bat yeah cave. i i, I that's why i, I said can we talk way. about it a little bit <laughs> maybe a little bit uh, how, how did you how did you do your I, I guess the question is how did you do your research for that yep so there is there's a lot when you dig deep online there's a lot out there um, and then when you talk to people who are involved in these different things, they all leave a lot out. Um, but you talk to another person, what they leave out might be what the other person put in. So just like a journalist would go around and talk to multiple sources to put a story together uh, in a very similar respect, you just talk to multiple people, you do your research, you, uh, you dig, you, uh, you verify, you, uh, you question, um, and then you connect dots. So uh, I think that's what a journalist uh, would do in researching a story anyway. Um, and that's what I did for this. I just had a had a question. I kind of knew what I what I knew was really what I knew from Hollywood movies, um, what I knew from other books in the genre. Um, uh, and uh, and most of those books were very similar to what is portrayed in Hollywood films. What I found out is that uh, the real real life isn't really like a Hollywood film as far as these things go. Uh, so I didn't know that going in. I completely, uh, I was new. So I didn't have any uh, preconceived notions other than what I'd seen in Hollywood. And I knew that, hey, that might not be quite right. It looks good. Uh, let's see what it's really like. And uh, so it's just my best best stab at it. you know. I don't, uh, uh, but I do think it's fairly accurate. I'll agree with you. How many more, <laughs> uh, how many more books you got in you? Well, I, I have at least two because the next contract is for two and I'm writing five and I know where six is going. Uh, so at least that many. And then we'll see. Uh, I think I have as I don't think I'm going to ever be at a loss for topics or themes to explore or storylines. Um, there's just so much to explore out there. And I love doing this. It's definitely uh, not laborious. I love every aspect. I mean, it's laborious. And you have to put in the work. You got to put in the mat time. You got to put in the ring time. Um, it doesn't just happen. But uh, but I love every part of it. I love solving problems on the written page uh, the same way I used to do downrange. Although now here, if I'm solving problems aggressively on, uh, on the page of a novel and I mess it up, that's okay. I can come back the next day and fix it. I can sleep on it. Whereas if uh, the bullets are flying and you're maneuvering forces and you're looking for gaps and looking for things to exploit, uh, well, uh, you can mess that up pretty bad. Uh, even if you do the quote unquote right thing, you can still mess it up downrange just because the enemy gets a vote and there's so many different dynamics in a gunfight but uh but with this i get to think things through i get to sleep on them if i can't figure something out 
you know, that's okay. I can go for a run. I can have dinner. I can come back to it the next day. Uh, I can do a podcast uh, and uh, and come and, and, and make it as good as it can be over a year-long period. So, uh, so I enjoy every aspect of it. I don't think I'm running out of ideas anytime soon. Let's quickly go over the other stuff that you have going right now. <clears throat> you have officialjackcar.com. They can find out everything they want to know about you. It's got a newsletter. It's got everything. Uh, you sell products on there. Uh, you you got some pretty great uh, bottle openers and, and things like that on there. Um, anything that you want to talk about on the website? Because I think it's a very in-depth website. I think it covers everything, the books and beyond, pretty much. And it, it seems like you want to do, with the next thing that we talk about, you kind of want to cover everything and beyond. Exactly. So uh, I get asked questions all the time. Hey, do you have any books? That you, can you recommend any books? Or, hey, what do you about this topic or that topic or uh, something similar? Or, hey, what influenced you? So I have those reading lists up there where I pick six books a month and I talk about where I was uh, when I read those, how they influenced me either as a combat leader or as an author. Uh, so I pick six books from my list every month and I talk about those and those go up on the website, on the blog, and people can sign up for the newsletter so they, they know when those are, are coming up. Um, so that's in there i get a lot of questions about different guns and gear weapons and you know blades that sort of thing so uh so there's some blog articles on that so people can just deep dive in if they want to know a little bit more about some of the gear in the books or about uh some of the vehicles in the books or those sorts of things there's uh, uh there's probably something that i've written on the blog about it so uh updates on on the terminal list uh like those will be in there those will be in the newsletter i'll get some uh, i think they're supposed to send me some behind the scenes pictures that i can kind of leak out at some point uh so that'll be kind of fun those will go in there um so yeah that's uh that's on the website and same thing on uh, on instagram is where i'm most active on the social channels so um so i try to be thoughtful in uh in what i'm putting putting up there because once again people have trusted me with their time so um i want to add value to that person's day rather than just posting something that's uh you know a funny meme or a, or whatever which are fine i like memes too but uh but uh i want to put something out there that's that's thoughtful so i put uh, time energy and effort into into all of these things blades books and bullets i love that's watching it. these uh, they're, they're, they're great. So these aren't the written out. This is actually you showing each book, you showing each weapon, you showing each piece of equipment. And I, I really love these videos. Uh, and you're, you're very steadfast in them. You put them out every, every month. Um, have, have you ever gotten any, cause one of my favorite things is how you start them is your bad reviews. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I like to pick a couple every, uh, every month and, and read those and you know, it's, uh, they're kind of fun and you turn a negative into a positive. You had, you had read one where you had a negative review where they said, I don't know if they said you were necessarily racist, but your, uh, Mexican character was, yeah. and I thought he's one of the biggest heroes of the book. Like he makes so much stuff happen. How could you possibly get that from reading this book which makes me think they didn't read the book right yeah that's the, that's the thing about there being no barriers um today there's a lot of great things you know about that is that I, we, we can connect and do this i can connect with with readers um but at the same time you know back in let's say 1985 if you were going to comment on someone's book that's sub, a subjective work uh you would have to write a letter You'd have to mail it. You'd have to figure out where to mail it, um, and which newspaper, which magazine. Uh, then it would get there. Maybe someone would open it. Maybe it would make it to an editor's desk. Maybe they would read it. And then if it was crazy, they'd toss it in the trash. Uh, but today, all that crazy is out there. 
So there's no block. There is no filter. Uh, it is all out there unfiltered. And there's, uh, there's some good about it and there's some bad about it. Um, but so for some of those, you know, where you get the one-star review where it's obvious that, uh, that someone didn't, uh, they just don't like maybe what they think your politics are. Or they don't like, you know, that stuff. And they're just trying to, trying to hurt you. Well, yeah, you can spend your time doing that, I guess. Uh, I can think of a lot better things to do with uh, the, the finite time that I have on this earth. And we never know how long that is going to be so you get to decide that's what's fascinating to me the psychology of not just the bad reviews but uh, when you see on twitter or something and it's not even on my stuff just in general um how negative people can be and how much time they can spend trying to you know hurt somebody else or be just be mean to someone else or, or completely unnecessary when they could have taken that time and and allocated it in a productive direction either to you know improve themselves their situation in life or help someone else maybe um like you could take that time and leave a good review on him for a book you like uh on amazon um but you chose you chose to write a paragraph two paragraphs and be mean and nasty about something uh and that's time you're never getting back so the psychology of that is fascinating and i get to weave that into my stories and then i get to to share it on these videos uh with people and turn that negative into a into a positive yeah definitely keyboard warriors out there Three other things real quick. Danger Close podcast. Let's talk about it. It just launched. You already have like 47 million subscribers to it. Uh, it, it blew up. Like the second it launched, it blew up. That was crazy. You know, I just expect, I thought, hey, this is just going to be another way to connect with readers that you couldn't have done back in 85 or 95. Um, so, so, so why not, why not do it and be able to explore some of those things that we just talked about, some of that negativity from uh, that's inherent in social media platforms, um, being able to just reply to something with one sentence. Uh, nuance is lost. Uh, a lot of sarcasm is lost. A lot of understanding uh, is lost. Body language is lost, of course, because you're not talking to an actual person. Facial expressions are lost. Um, uh, the, the digital courage is what someone told me today. Uh, you know, like liquid courage. Now there's a digital courage, like you just said keyboard warriors uh so that's into the mix um right there so uh so yeah it's it so that if i wanted people ask me questions all the time where maybe the answer might be a little more nuanced than i want to get into with one sentence as i'm going through at the one in the morning two in the morning thanking people for uh, taking a risk on me as an author which i try i try to get back to everybody but i know it's not probably not happening now but i'm trying to go through at the end of the day at least and give that little heart or say thank you because i sincerely appreciate everybody's support so i, I try to do that but sometimes someone will ask a question that uh, is uh will require a little more time a little more thought a little more nuance that uh that maybe a one sentence uh response won't be productive because the either the receiver or someone else who sees it might interpret that one sentence based on a host of factors um where they don't have that nuance they don't have that tone uh they don't have any of those things that we have here as we're talking uh like this so i saw the podcast as a way to explore some of those topics uh and then also share some more uh behind the scenes click closer to the to the books what inspired them who inspired different parts of them uh what i learned about different weapons uh training whatever it might be uh and and then talk about some of these more um i, I guess sensitive and divisive is a, is a term for it, but more uh issues that are more that are better discussed uh like this than with a one sentence answer and then going on to the next and then coming back and then getting mad because someone misinterpreted what you said and then write another thing and then someone else comes in and just tries to do the trolling thing and spark 
you know, so it's just, so I don't really get into that on uh, on those social channels just because I don't think it's a it's a, a proper venue for it or very productive venue for moving any sort of conversations forward in a productive way. So the podcast will be the mechanism for doing that. Yeah. And I think anything that you would say on there, th- that person is there to do that. It's not going to change. their Nothing you say is going to change their mind. Exactly. So, exactly. yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. I want to talk about the show real quick and then we'll wrap this up. Uh, Amazon prime, the terminal list. You did it. You made it. You're, you're, uh, you're there. Well, I don't really look at it in those terms. And, you know, people ask me when the, when the news hit that they were uh, starting to film about two weeks ago, uh, they're like, Hey, how do you feel? You must feel amazing that they started. And I was like, uh, yes. And I do. And then I'm like on to the next thing. Cause there's so much going on, uh, that I haven't really taken a time yet to breathe, to take a breath look around um people keep saying hey you need to enjoy it i'm like i am enjoying it i'm just busy uh so at some point i need to maybe get a little less busy but that's now's not the time for that now's the time to uh to build to capitalize on on momentum to uh you know to continue building this uh building this readership um because that allows me to to write that allows me to continue to develop these stories and publish them so um so yeah it's uh yeah once again i feel very fortunate on a host of levels And I think it's more than just a book. I think you're building a brand. I think there is a Jack Carr brand out there uh, and and people know uh, what they're going to get from that brand because it's consistent on everything that comes out. There's, there's nothing that's subpar. Everything is on point. Uh, Pratt has already started putting out stuff. He took a video the other day in his trailer of being in Reese's uniform and, and stuff like that. So getting excited now, I know people have asked before, but I got to ask just to make sure. Uh, when's it coming out? Classified. Okay. All right. I figured you would say that. <laughs> and Bob, probably uh, also it can change, I would guess. Uh, so I, don't, I doubt it is uh, in stone yet anyway. So they're very hesitant to uh, to put that out there yet before it gets closer, I think, anyway. I don't ask too many questions just because I don't want to be uh, – I don't want to be annoying. I'm just so, I'm just so happy to be here. Uh, That's kind of the stage I'm in. (laughs) Okay. All right, guys. I think that's going to be it. Jack, I can't tell you how much I thank you for coming on and talking. I have been looking forward to this so much and they got a hold of me and said that something popped up on you and we had to reschedule. I'm like, look, let's just get in here and get it done. So uh, anything else that you want to mention? before we no, get out man, of no, here. Thank you so much for, for having me on. And uh, yeah, looking forward to, uh, to seeing how you transition out of what you're doing and, uh, and build what you're, what you're building because you're exceptionally good at it. And uh, yeah, keep crushing and we'll do this again sometime. Yeah, absolutely. So guys, that's going to be it for tonight. Make sure you check out this book series, The Terminal List, True Believer, Savage Son, and in April, The Devil's Hand is coming out. And it's... Uh, I think it's going to blow your mind, just like all these other books have. The Amazon Prime show from the Terminal List is coming up. You can go to officialjackcar.com. You're pretty much everywhere. The Danger Close podcast, anywhere they're looking for you, they can find you. Whether they want to read you, watch you, or listen to you, they can find Jack Carr. If you want more of me, you can go to the Facebook group at the DTD Podcast. You can go to YouTube to DTD Podcast to see these videos of the interviews, or you can catch me on Twitter at DoublespeakDJ. Jack, thank you so much for coming on. That's going to be it, guys. Make sure you check this out, officialjackcar.com. That's Jack. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you on the next one. Thanks, guys.